This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. But before I get there, I want to uh, remind you some of what we read this morning from Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 28, 29, and 30. Um, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit shall never has forgiveness, excuse me, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. These words of Jesus have troubled many through the years, through the centuries. Um, and there are those who struggle with whether or not they have committed this eternal sin, whether or not they have committed this unpardonable, unforgivable sin. So what exactly is this sin that Christ is talking about? Well, he describes it in verse 29 as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy meaning um, to speak reproachfully or, or uh, revile someone. It's to speak evil, true evil against the Holy Spirit. And Mark reveals that to us in verse 30. He reveals how they spoke to him. It's because they said he, speaking about Jesus, has an unclean spirit. That's what these religious leaders were doing. They were witnessing what he was doing, uh, that he was giving sight to the blind, that he was healing the lame, that he was healing leprosy. He was doing things that are, in many ways, impossible in our modern world with modern medicine. But he was fixing them. And he was proclaiming a kingdom to come. And they saw this, and they witnessed it, and they attributed all that they saw to Beelzebub, to Satan. And they were speaking evil of the Holy Spirit that was actually working there. So they denied the evidence that was right in front of them. They denied who Christ was. They were religious leaders. They had studied the Old Testament. They were looking for their Messiah. They knew when he was supposed to come. They knew where he would be. They knew what he would be doing. And here's Christ doing all of that. And instead of acknowledging it and bending the knee to him, they deny all of it. And they, in doing so, they deprive themselves of the evidence right before them of the Messiah that was present. That was present. And in doing so, they divested themselves entirely from salvation, from any involvement with the Messiah, from any, um, any possibility of forgiveness of their sins. 
So what was this unforgivable sin that Jesus was speaking of? Is those who witnessed the fulfillment of all the the of all of the prophecies for the Messiah and then denied it when it was happening. So a couple of things to consider in that. The nature of this sin to ascribe the obvious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the promised Messiah and then attribute it to Satan himself. It, it was a sin committed when Jesus was on the earth performing those miracles and fulfilling those prophecies. And I, for one, say that since he's not here physically, and he's not fulfilling those prophecies, then I don't think it's possible for us to blaspheme the Holy Spirit the way that these religious leaders were doing so. This was not simply a moment of doubt in their mind, or a sinful attitude that they had. Instead, it was a settled conviction under certain conditions that we can't replicate. They saw the Spirit's work, and then they attributed it to Satan. It's something that you and I are not as capable of doing. And so, I'd also like to say that any person who is concerned about this uh, has probably is not even gotten close to committing this kind of sin. Um, because if you notice the attitudes of the leaders at that time, they had no concern whatsoever about what Christ was saying or, or, uh, or offending him in any way. So those who throughout the ages have struggled with this idea, and I confess that I am one of them as a young Christian. I struggled with this idea if whether or not I had offended the Holy Spirit so much that I had put myself beyond the, um, the possibility of salvation. But those who struggle with this, those who have this fearful attitude indicate by their fearful attitude that they do have a concern for the Holy Spirit. And so they are not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In some way, they are putting Him in His proper place and putting themselves in their proper place, even if they don't fully understand all the theology behind it. So I would like to put it to rest today that if you have been struggling with this, if you have been concerned with it, I assure you that you have not committed that particular sin. But our text in Hebrews that we've looked at um, last week and then we're looking at again this week, um, it does not specifically address the unforgivable sin that Jesus spoke of in Mark. These are two different things. But it does clearly tell us that we can still fall into a particular condition in our lives where forgiveness is simply not possible. Like I said last week, I don't want to soften the, the impact of these words. This is truly that serious and truly that concerning, which is why we're spending more time on it this week. We do well to consider it carefully. The author of Hebrews describes a condition of apostasy in which repentance and forgiveness is not possible. So let's look again at that passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that has fallen on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, verse 6, like I said, doesn't mention a particular sin. Instead, it speaks of this falling away that happens. And we spoke in some detail about that last week. You can go back and look at the descriptive terms that he uses, like once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared of the Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's Word. And you can look at that and get a feel for what he's talking about for those who have fallen away. This is not speaking of somebody who visited church and left. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about somebody who was engaged in church life. But let's consider it again in light of what we were looking at this morning in Mark 9 with the, with the uh, unforgivable sin. We've seen this, I've I pointed out that that is something separate. That it's something that we, cannot that we cannot do today. But this we can. This we can. So you might consider this the unforgivable sin of our day. But it's not a single sin. What is the author of Hebrews describing here? Because it's obviously very serious. This is, like I said, probably one of the most serious warnings in all of Scripture. Hebrews 6.6 6 tells us that there is a sin by which they are once again crucifying Christ. That doesn't mean that there is a second crucifixion. What it means is that their attitude towards Christ is the same as the attitude of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Their attitude is the same attitude of Pontius Pilate, the same attitude of the, the Jews that stood in the courtyard and cried out, condemn him, crucify him. We went through those details last week. Um, that's the attitude that they have. That's the attitude that Hebrews 6.6 6 is talking about. And we see this again in Hebrews chapter 10, when we will see that there is a sin for which there is no, or for which no longer uh, any sacrifice for sin. There is a sin for which there is no longer any sacrifice available. Well, brothers and sisters, like I say many times from the pulpit here, we can always find hope and compassion in God's Word. We can always find hope and compassion in God's Word, but we must not soften the tone of these warnings. The text clearly says that there is a possibility for sin for which there is no longer any hope for forgiveness. Note carefully that it is an ongoing sin. This is not a singular sin or a moment of sin. This is an ongoing condition of rebellion against God. Uh, and his offer of grace. Hebrews 6 um, says that it is committed openly. It is committed openly. It is a public thing. It is not some sin that happens in a, uh, in, in a, um, a moment of, of passion at your own home, either anger or lust or whatever it is. It's something that is committed openly so that people know, 
hey, this is the guy that used to go to church. He used to proclaim the gospel. He was once enlightened, and now listen to what he says. It's not the same. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, both chapters speak about how this is committed knowingly. This wasn't an accidental thing. This was, this was premeditated. This is a conscious effort on their part. Hebrews 10 also goes on to say that it is continual. It is willful. It is deliberate. It is a condition that they live in. A spiritual condition in which one is committing sin of the most serious nature. It is as serious as what the religious leaders did in the day of Christ. It is a sin of understanding, acknowledging, and yet rejecting and scorning God's offer of grace and forgiveness. It is the sin of insulting and mocking the Spirit of God that brings that offer of grace. It is the sin of continually trampling underfoot and rejecting the Son of God and treating treating uh, the blood of the covenant, uh, the atonement, all the work of Christ, treating it as if it was something common that could be dismissed. It is, brothers and sisters, a spiritual condition that, if left unchecked, has grave consequences. Hebrews 6, 8 says that they are near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And you read when Hebrews 10 says that there is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, a punishment worse than death, which is the vengeance and judgment of the Lord. We have gone into detail on several number of occasions about what that is like, brothers and sisters. The reason why Scripture chooses that term that it would be better off if you had never been born. All the pleasures of this world you could have. I can tell you, all the pleasures that Pontius Pilate knew in his life are nothing compared to what he endures now. If indeed he never came to repentance. There's some history, uh, some tradition, um, that he did repent after the events of the resurrection and everything. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but you can live with hope. I don't know. I hope it's true. I think uh, it's pretty clear about, um, Scripture's pretty clear about what happened to Judas, but not so clear about what happened to Pontius Pilate. We just assume the ending, the ending of his story. Um... But this worse than death, the, the punishment is worse than death because it is a life lived in separation from all of the blessings that make life worth living. Make fellowship, the, the fellowship, family, the, the blessings, the very things that we love and idolize in this world that the Lord has given to us to bless us become a curse to us. So what is this unforgivable sin mentioned in Hebrews, and how do we commit it today? I think that's becoming clearer, is it not? This is not speaking about the same thing that Jesus mentioned in Mark, but there are the similarities. There are some who will say that the author of Hebrews is talking about any sin that we knowingly commit regularly, 
and that we refuse to repent of despite the many opportunities that come into life. And I have difficulty accepting that as an explanation uh, because we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with some sins in our life. Um, and I also, when I hear that, what comes to mind is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. You remember the story. Peter comes to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother who sins against me? And what does the Lord say to him? Seven times seventy. Now remember the sign of the number of seven is it represents uh, completion, even a divine completion. And then you add this, you multiply it by this number seventy. It's speaking about an infinite number. It's not speaking about four hundred and ninety. If someone, if someone sins against you, and they are genuinely grieved by it, then the Lord clearly expects you to forgive them. It doesn't matter what the sin is, how often it happens. Now, I will say this caveat. Um, there's much that can be said about this, and maybe at some point we will come to it. Um, but you are not to live your life as a perpetual victim of somebody else's character flaws. Okay, there's some change that needs to happen. Maybe there's some new boundaries that you need to set in your life. Uh, you do not have to put yourself in harm's way because somebody else can't control some aspect of their life. But we can do that and still forgive them. You can forgive someone and yet change the nature of that relationship. That's another sermon. We often find ourselves, brothers and sisters, though, we often find ourselves repeating a sin over and over in our lives. Not like a habit thing. That's not what I'm saying. But there is what some theologians say is a besetting sin. So what, what do I mean by a besetting sin? In, the, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, one, when we get to it, the King James Version puts it like this. Wherefore, this is after speaking that hall of... Uh, of the faithful, or the, the, the list of all those faithful in history. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also have compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So besetting sin refers to any sin that, that we continually struggle with. Some people, some people have a short fuse, and they lose their temper. And that's sinful. It's sinful every time it happens with it. And I know people like that, and they grieve over it every time it gets them. We all have our particular weaknesses. There is something that each one of us is naturally inclined to. An alcoholic is naturally inclined to drunkenness. That's obvious. But what about the praise of man? The praise of man will lead people to do all sorts of sin. It certainly leads them into lying, leads them into some greed. What about the pleasures of the flesh? It leads people into adultery, into gluttony, into pornography. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everybody has a particular besetting sin, and it is your weakness. And you do well to study yourself and study the Word of God to know what it is, because I promise you, 
Satan knows. Satan knows you're besetting sin. And he's always casting little fiery darts at that. Always setting up obstacles. Always looking for the opportunity to trip you up and cause you to sin. Because then maybe he can think, or maybe he can make you think, that you're finally run out of chances. That's 491. You're done, buddy. That's the unforgivable sin right there. Now you can fall into despair and I can lock you in the iron cage. Satan knows your weaknesses and he looks for every opportunity to exploit them. So know it yourself and prepare for that battle. Prepare for that battle. We live in a spiritual warfare and it is a fool who goes into battle without preparing. I do not think the author of Hebrews is talking about this though. I do not think he's talking about that besetting sin. Because you're struggling with it. He's not talking about a sin that you struggle with. The Lord Jesus has a love for you that is infinite. He has a compassion for you that cannot have bounds, that does not have bounds. He will not abandon you because you struggle to get victory over a particular sin in your life. He will not abandon you because you are too afraid or too ashamed to go ask somebody for help. He will not abandon you because your pastor doesn't have the insight or the wisdom to see it, to notice it, and to pursue it with you. Now the Lord may chastise you. Don't be surprised at that. You will continue to struggle with this, whatever it may be. You may even suffer because of your own sins. But the Lord will not abandon you because of your weakness. It does not speak of the Lord that we know and serve. He come to help us because we are weak. And He stands ready to help when we are weak. It's what Paul says, in my weakness, He is strong. So we turn to Him. And we will find the strength that we need. That is not what Hebrews is talking about. The key to understanding the text is found in the text. Amen? The key to understanding and interpreting the Bible is found in the Bible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then they have fallen away it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding, their, holding Him up to their own contempt. Now, this is where your focus needs to sharpen. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the key to what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Remember, the first century Hebrew Christians, they lived in a very different world than we live in today. They would live in a very different world than we live in. The nature of man has not changed any. They still struggled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So all of this is still pertinent to them. But they lived much closer to the land than we do. They would have more readily understood the significance when uh, the author mentions the rainfall, and the crops, and the cultivating of the land, and the thorns, and the thistles, and the burning of the field. That would have been so much clearer to them. We sometimes have to pause and think about, why is he mentioning 
farm stuff in the middle of this lecture or in the middle of this sermon about sin. We need more explanation. Recall the story of the four soils. That one we're very familiar with. The parable of the four soils. And what did the soils represent? It was the hearts of the individuals that, that heard the gospel. And some of them bore fruit. Some of them sprouted up quickly. Some of them, the birds came and snatched it away. Or there just wasn't enough soil there. The image here is very similar. Note the following. That, that the rain falls on the land. The rain falls on the land as a, as a continual blessing from the Lord. And the land drinks it in. But you notice there's two types of soil here. Just like the four soils in Jesus' parable, where the seed of the gospel fell on good soil and it fell on bad soil. Remember, there was only one good soil. The bad soil, there were just different types of bad soil. Notice that the good soil here is the same. It's the land that's cultivated that bears fruit. It produces a crop that is a blessing for those who work the field. And even the land itself is blessed. There's so much in there. The word falls on our ears and we hear it. We are blessed by it. We are blessed by it even more when we cultivate it. And then those around us are blessed by it. The person who hears the word of God and cultivate it, cultivates it becomes a blessing to themselves, a blessing to the people around them, a blessing to the kingdom of God. But now notice the other part of the land also drinks in the water, but the landowner doesn't cultivate the land. They do not care for it. They do not toil, or they do not till up the soil. They do not sow the seed. They do not nourish any of it. So the land produces thorns and thistles, and it blesses no one, and it is condemned. Brothers and sisters, this idea of cultivating the soil runs all through Scripture. I read about it from Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 5, when the Lord was, was saying, I've done everything for this vineyard, and look what it produced for me. Now, tell me where I have done anything wrong. Tell me what else I could have done that I didn't do. And so now I'm going to bring judgment upon it. That's what he was talking about. But we can go back further than that to Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then he put a man in there. The land was meant to produce fruit. The man was meant to cultivate it, was meant to represent God in creation. But then man rebels. He sins, and a curse falls upon all of creation. And we read about that in Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And to Adam, 
He said, speaking of God, God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So once land that just blossomed productive fruit-bearing vines and trees is now cursed, and he has to struggle to make it bear fruit. And we see this theme running all through Scripture. And then we come here to Hebrews chapter 6, and in in, uh, verses 6 and 7 serve to illustrate what verses 4 through 8 is talking about. Verses 6 and 7 are given to us as an illustration of what this looks like. What he's talking about, those who fall away and it is impossible to restore them. Like the rain that falls on the dry ground, God's word is a blessing that falls on the hearts of all mankind who hear it. If there is an effort to cultivate that land, then the land produces a crop that is a blessing. But in the absence of workers, the land produces only thorns and thistles. Sometimes it takes a long time for that to bear to show. Believers and those who have fallen away continue to receive the blessing of God's Word. Those who sit here this morning who are believers and unbelievers, they hear the blessing of God's Word. And those who are are here who may have fallen away. In the sense that, how how do we put it, uh, they may have backslidden a bit. They may be struggling with something, and so they tend to withdraw from God. And I've warned you against that. You never know when that first step off the beaten path, that first step off the narrow path, I think is a better way to say it, that first step off the narrow path will lead you to apostasy. You never know that. So you must be diligent with every step. But for those who hear the blessing of God's word, if the man, if the heart of the man is evil, if there's no effort to cultivate the word, but instead the word is rejected, then the blessings eventually become a curse to them. And the unbeliever stands condemned. That's what this is talking about. The author of Hebrews is warning his readers that just hearing the word of God, that just tasting the word of God, that just experiencing the blessings of church life, cannot save you. There must be genuine spiritual rebirth. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And when that happens, and God's blessings are received with humility and thankfulness, then spiritual life develops and it matures, which is what we started with in this chapter. There were a bunch of those Hebrew Christians who were not maturing on. Maybe it's because they were never truly, they never truly had any spiritual life in them. And whenever they begin to get pressed to maturity, they fall away. Has this not been our experience over the years with this church? Where we have those who come to visit, but then when you sort of press them on to maturity... They fall away. They leave. People are right when they tell you 
that the offer uh, that the offer of God's grace and salvation is free to you because it didn't cost you anything. It cost Christ everything when He came. But the Lord God made demand of you everything, just like He demanded of the rich of the rich young ruler who came to Him. Very wealthy man, but that's where his heart was. So the Lord told him, you've got to get rid of all those things. You can't come into the kingdom carrying the baggage of your idols. You must drop them here. You must, as a little Christian found, the only place to get rid of that burden of sin is at the cross. And sometimes we don't recognize that our burden is what we, or what we think is our blessings is actually our burden. The Lord expects us to mature. He does not expect us to remain stagnant. He expects us to progress. Because when we press on in that manner, we bear fruit. It eventually shows. You will, as Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. It is not just the hearing, as James says, it's not just the hearing of the word, but the doing of the word that matters. The rain alone will not produce fruit. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's the rain and the work. The rain and the work are both required. They both must be present to produce a crop. There are so many in our culture today, believers and unbelievers, who worry about this unforgivable sin. They worry about if they've fallen into that or if they've committed that. And yes, it is indeed, sin is always serious. But likely, but like I said earlier, the unforgivable sin that Mark's, or that Mark speaks of, that Christ mentions in Mark chapter 3, that's not something that you can do. That was unique to their time, unique to their people, unique to what was going on there. There are, brothers and sisters, some unique things that have happened in church history that will not be repeated. The Lord was establishing something. The work that Christ was doing will never be repeated. He is the one that made atonement. And there are other things that happened that will not be repeated. I believe that this is one of them. Those who are truly guilty of the unforgivable sin, they did not express any concern about it. So if you have a concern about it, I, trust me, you have not committed anything like that. But more concerning than that, people get wrapped around the axle about that, more concerning to that, to me as a pastor, is the sin of apostasy. Because it happens so slowly. And we see it happening. How many times in the news in the last few years we've heard about these people who are unconverted or deconstructed, they're deconstructing their faith and they're coming out of it. It's this is what they were this is what the Hebrews was warning about. Who is it most recent? Josh Harris? The guy that did he write the I Kissed Dating Goodbye or something? Is that his name? Am I the only one that knows that? Okay. Yeah, he um, he's this is this is who Hebrews is talking about. This is a young man who built a ministry for 20, 30 years. But he's never truly a Christian. 
never truly a Christian. Now he has walked away from the faith and repudiates it. And if you were to speak to him, do you think you could quote a scripture that he didn't preach on? It's impossible to bring them back. This is more concerning to me. Each one of us should be more concerned. And Hebrews makes that out. Hebrews, the author, he, he, he warned us of this, did he not? Be careful about each other. We are, we are living as a community. Be, be aware of each other so that no one of us falls into sin. But people need to be concerned about their apathy and laziness. We are all guilty of it. At some point, to some degree, these things can lead to a falling away. Because it becomes one little step. One little step. And you get comfortable just two steps away from the beaten path. And so you take another step. And then that becomes a little more comfortable. It's like, it's like, we've made this analogy many times, it's like a drug addiction. A little bit here, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and the next thing you know, you've lost everything, and you pause, you've run out of your money, and the alcohol and the drugs have eaten away your life, and you're left with nothing. That's what sin does to us. It takes us further than we were, think we would ever go, keeps us longer than we thought we would stay, and costs us far more than we ever wanted to pay. This is what the author of Hebrews is warning us about. Not warning us about a singular sin that you might commit even more often than you want to admit. He is warning us about approaching the Word of God in such a way that it eventually becomes meaningless to us. That's what he's talking about. This is the Word of God preserved for you through the years so that He could bring this message to you. And if you will not hear it, or if you hear it and you will not act on it, then there truly is no chance of repentance, no chance of salvation. It truly is impossible. How many of you have heard the story, and it's rather popular, especially here in the South, where we have so much flooding, of the man who's in his house, and the river begins to rise. And as the water gets up, gets up close to the street, a bus comes along. And the guy goes out to meet the bus. And the bus driver says, hey, we've been sent by the city. I'm going to pick up everybody. We're moving everybody to higher ground. And the guy goes, no, nope, I'm waiting upon the Lord. And he goes back in his house. And then the water rises up. Pretty soon he can't get off his porch. So somebody comes along in a boat and says, hey, I'm out here picking people up, uh, taking them to higher ground. And the guy says, oh, I'm waiting upon the Lord. The Lord is going to save me. And then the next time he comes around, he's sitting on the roof because the water's all the way up to the top of the house. And a helicopter comes along and says, hey, I'm here to help you, to get you to higher ground. And he says, nope, the Lord's going to save me. I'm waiting upon the Lord. And then he dies because he drowned in the flood. And he stands at the pearly gates. And Peter says, what are you doing here? And the guy says, well, I was waiting upon the Lord, but I drowned in the flood. And he says, what are you talking about? I sent you a bus, a boat, and a helicopter. He refused all of it. The Lord has sent you a Savior. And He sent you His Word to tell you about that. And if you refuse it, then you are truly lost. There is no other salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which man is to be saved. 
It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now, whether you are obeying the gospel for the first time, or if you have already tasted the heavenly gift and received the knowledge of truth and been enlightened, if you do not act upon what you have heard, then you are like the land that produces thorns and thistles. You are close to being condemned. Now, if you have made a profession of faith, but you struggle, you struggle with your sin, then you are like the rest of us. And that's why we have a Savior. You've backslidden a little bit, and you've, you might feel that, that, that conscience weighing upon you, the enemy telling you that you are lost. There's no hope for you. That's where Satan wants you. But remember the story of the prodigal son. He knew where he, his blessings were, so he gets up and he goes to his Lord, or he goes to his home, and the father sees him off. Look, you don't even have to do that much. I promise you. The mercy of the Lord is, the depths of the mercy of the Lord is beyond what you can, what you can offend him by. You just turn your nose. Turn your nose to him, and he will run to meet you. You don't even have to get up off your knees. You just turn your nose to him. And he will run to meet you like the father ran to meet the prodigal son. And there are many of you who are here in this who have not acted upon the gospel. Do not let the enemy lure you into a state of despair. That's where Satan wants to keep you. In the state of despair, just like the man in the iron cage in Pilgrim's Progress. The man in the iron cage was in a state of despair, beyond hope. But it was a cage of his own making. When you are in despair, then your own heart and your own mind refuses to believe that there is hope. But I think we make it clear every time we look at Scripture, there is this warning, this condemnation that is coming, but there is compassion in that warning. And I'm telling you this, that God is sovereign. That the Lord has brought you here to this place and this time in your life to bless you, not to curse you. How do I know that? Because you're already cursed. You were cursed back in Genesis chapter 3 when God proclaimed your condemnation. He could have just left you there. He could have left you alone like so many other people throughout history. God could have left you in your sin, in your ignorance, in your darkness. But even while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, God brought you to this place to hear about a Savior. To hear about Jesus Christ, that He came to bring salvation. And the author of Hebrews is warning you, do not reject the offer of God's grace. Do not reject the offer of, offer of God's grace. Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised another opportunity. You are not promised another opportunity. You don't have to get all your ducks in a row. You don't have to try to balance the account with Christ. You just need to respond. He's looking for a response. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for a response. If you know how to respond to that offer, then just do it. 
Just do it. Don't wait to try to figure out, am I bearing fruit? Is something happening in me? If you have the desire to respond to the gospel, then just do it because that's the first step. That's all that's asked. That's all that it takes. Is the first step. It's one step into apostasy. One step off the path will take you into apostasy. But one step towards that wicked gate could bring you to the cross and bring you to salvation. Let us pray.